0: Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week we are talking to Ethan S. Brewerton. Ethan is a freelance illustrator and comic artist with a lot of experience running successful Kickstarter campaigns for both digital and physical goods. We start off talking to Ethan a little about his work in comics and illustration to set the stage and give a little bit of insight into a creative profession we haven't explored very much on this podcast. I hope to do so more in the future. From there we go into a deep dive of Ethan's Kickstarter projects of the recent past. We purposely arranged the conversation so that we would be able to carefully analyze each step along the way when organizing and running a Kickstarter campaign. We talk about how to lay the groundwork before you launch your campaign, how to start it, what happens during the lifespan of the live campaign, and how to handle everything that needs to happen once your campaign ends. If there is anything you ever wanted to know about Kickstarter, this is the episode to listen to. Here's our conversation with Ethan S. Brewerton. Okay, Ethan, the floor is yours. Just go the next two hours, nonstop. Oh, God. You've seen my
1: streams. You know I can't do that. Start drawing. Don't tempt me.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for being here, man. I've been looking forward to this and really appreciate you giving us some time. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's dive right into it. Um, Give us a little bit of background on yourself. Uh, How did you get into art and how did it... Suck you down into the dark, murky depths to hold you forever?
1: Starting with the hard questions. Uh, So, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, kind of like wandering the forest behind my house. And I was kind of always fascinated with like the mystery of like what could be out there. Um, And I was also into like building things, so like making things that weren't already there. Uh, Started with like building forts and stuff like that. Then, you know, I found out that Legos existed. Uh, started making stuff like that and that's actually what got me into like drawing is like wanting to create things but not necessarily having the material to do it or um, The resource yeah, just the resources to do it and so I would start drawing it to get these ideas out of my head and then um, But I didn't really think about it as like a a thing that I did like it wasn't like drawing for any other purpose, really. It was just to create something, um, to explain something, basically. Um, but um, when I was younger, my, my grandmother was doing a lot of pottery. And so we were my sister and I would hang out at her house and do a lot of that stuff, which kind of introduced me to more kinds of art things. So when I got into school, um, I kind of just took to art class pretty easily. Um, and then I didn't really take it seriously until I got to college. I, I ended up going to community college because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And when I took my first art class um, and I, I met a friend of mine uh, that uh, was doing things that I thought weren't really uh, something that I could do because I always I kind of viewed artists, like comic artists and the people that I looked up to in the art world as like, oh, they have talent that I don't have but when I actually met somebody in real life that was doing things closer to what I wanted to do, I was like, Oh, maybe this is like, maybe real people do this. And uh, that kind of set me on this journey to start pursuing my own art career.
2: I think that's uh, something that's really common where uh, the general public does not believe that they have the skill set that the, uh, the game developers or the artists out there that they look up to have, and maybe those, like the writers or whatever they like reading the books for, those people have some transcendent skill set that they cannot achieve.
1: Not 100%.
0: Yeah, I used to have that mentality. Uh, you know, like for the greater portion of my tattooing career when I was just doing tattoos, I would look at, you know, Magic the Gathering cards and those types of, you know, illustrations, and I would just, you know, I'd be like amazed and impressed but it, i don't for it never occurred to me that like maybe i could do that too someday but it's interesting to me to hear you talk about like all of the um sort of like hands-on fabrication experience that you have or you know in your early developmental years you know the um uh the sort of like structural what's the term that i'm looking for like where like you know types of art that would fall into the category of building something like making three dimensional Yeah, or sculptural, you know, and constructive, constructive. Yeah, because I it makes so much sense now when I look at your art and I see like how great, you know, an understanding you have of three dimensional forms and figures and perspective and stuff like that. And I would suspect that that there's a direct line from like you know those early formative years of lots of like hands on experience to being able to like mentally conceptualize like the the turning of three dimensional forms in space and stuff it makes me want to recommend pottery to everybody now
1: well also when I was younger, like I grew up around a lot of farm equipment and stuff, and I remember being like so fascinated with like all the little machines and stuff uh all the little mechanisms I should say inside of those machines um that i used to look at that stuff like for as long as i possibly could until my parents pulled me away basically
0: so was it just like right into comics or did you go to art school or are you largely like self-guided in your uh evolution as an artist so
1: i ended up going to a small school here in connecticut um called lime academy college of fine art um, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, at the time, it was very um, traditional. And when I say traditional, I mean like Renaissance-style traditional, so like a lot of figure studies, a lot of um, still lives, that kind of stuff. But when I went there, I saw them doing things like ecruche um, sculptures, which for anyone that doesn't know is like uh, the sculptures that you see that have like their skin flayed off, and it's just like all the muscles to like, study how uh, anatomy works and all that. And when I saw that stuff and I saw the art that was coming out of there that was like really strong fundamentally, um, a lot stronger than anything that I had seen at any other school that I had visited, I was like, this is the place that I need to go to like, get the foundation that I need to do whatever I want. Um, so um, that's where I ended up going for three years after community college, once I figured out that that's what I wanted to do. Did you know about drawbox.com at the time? I did not. That was back kind of before the internet was like a big learning tool. So uh, you pretty much could only go to school or go to the library, I guess, back then.
0: So what was your path outside of art school? What's the TLDR from art school to your professional career? Not necessarily to where you are now, but at least the, the the initial beginnings of your your professional career.
1: So the TLDR is uh, I'm stubborn, and uh, like as soon as I got out of art school, I quit my part time job at the local grocery store, and I was like, "That's it. I'm just gonna do it. I'm gonna either you know make no money <laughs> or, and die, or uh, I'm gonna make it on my art." And uh, I don't know that I recommend that to anybody, but that's what I did. And I have I had a support structure back then that I could afford to do something like that. Um, But uh, yeah, that's the the short version.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it's good enough for Van Gogh, it's good enough for you, right? No money, right? (laughs) Perfect.
2: How long have you been uh, doing this as your career?
1: About ten years now, since twenty eleven.
0: Who have been the really big mentors and inspirations along the way for you? Um, so I had an instructor
1: um, at Lime Academy, David Wenzel, who did the uh, the Hobbit graphic novel is probably what he's most famous for. But um, so in that school environment where everybody's doing like that kind of Renaissance-y kind of stuff, um, I kind of didn't really fit in. But at that time they were bringing in an illustration degree and he was like the first illustration instructor to come in there. And so we got fairly close during that because we could kind of commiserate in the uh, not really fitting in. Um, and he helped me a lot like early on. And I still run into him at like when cons are happening, I run into him at the local conventions and stuff and it's good to catch up and like, I'll hang out at his table and help him out. Um, and he gives me advice whenever I hit him up for it. But um, other than that, I'd say um, not really a mentor, but like I have like I've always had this friendly rivalry with my friend Leonardo Gonzalez, who is my friend that I talked about earlier that I met at community College. Uh, he goes by uh, La Gozart on Instagram and wherever else you could find him. Um, he does like monster stuff. And uh, we, we've always had, like, this friendly rivalry where uh, we always, like, used to collaborate when we were going to school together. And then we went to separate schools. Um, but we always kept in touch. And we're always, like, sharing art with each other and, like, learning from one another. And uh, I really recommend people having, like, some kind of rivalry whenever you're trying to learn something. It's probably, like, the best thing for motivation. But not to not to let it go into, like... Uh, unfriendly territory <laughs> unfriendly exactly yeah uh
2: that's uh, similar advice to uh what um evan mel Amundsen suggests because he had an art rival in high school he and uh jesper not jesper Ising, but a different jesper uh, and they kept pushing each other and be like hey this is how you do this in this perspective oh i get it now so they kept forcing each other to learn just like one up each other so yeah Peers are great, whether it's a rival or just a critique.
1: And I think that's the best thing about Twitch, honestly. Like, it's very easy to find other people that are kind of around your same level, and then like bouncing ideas off of them and learning from each other.
0: Yeah, definitely. um Liad in the chat is jumping right in with a, a question that is a little bit ahead of the game, but we can ask it now. Um, you had mentioned conventions and. He was curious what type of conventions you've gone to in the past and are there illustration specific conventions?
1: Um, So I've only been to a few that I've been to, uh, there's one in Connecticut called Terrificon that was, that happened at a casino every year um, that I used to go to pretty much every year for the past like f- three or four years. Um, but I had just recently like gotten into the, like going to conventions and stuff like that. Um, I know that there are, to answer the illustration specific convention question, I know there's a LuxCon. I think that's in like Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly. Um, but I'm not very knowledgeable on that.
2: It's aspect. in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. So, um, between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Um, but yeah, there are, are many conventions that, uh, will allow, uh, illustrators to be there that illustrators could do well with, um, like DragonCon, um, that comes to mind. Uh there are some other ones I can't remember off the because I don't really think about conventions very often. And uh luckily it's gonna be a little while before our conventions come back. So we can hunt those down a little bit later.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, especially recently.
0: Well going back to your professional life, um where where are you now? Like what is your main Thrust now. I know that you do some comics. We've touched a little bit on that. I'd love to hear you expand more on that and sort of like what else you've drawn in to round out the package.
1: So, like, I started out just like everybody else, where you just take whatever you can get and then you slowly like figure out what it is that you actually like doing. And I always like telling stories. And, but that kind of forks in the illustration world a little bit, Um, especially these days where it's like comics are one way to go for like storytelling. But now there's also like tabletop RPG stuff. And I have a hard time deciding which way I want to go on that one. So I'm doing a little bit of both, um, as is apparent in my Kickstarter. But I'm still doing like comic commissions and stuff like that. Um, And I I do a lot of character commissions for tabletop RPGs because it, it aligns pretty well with the storytelling aspect. Um, as well
0: do you feel like that makes it more difficult like is, are there pros and cons to having that tension between the two like do you ever think man this would be so much easier if i could just pick one <laughs> and just focus yes, everything all the it time
1: it? all the time but i figure like <sighs> most decisions that we make the grass is always greener right and like i i will probably eventually pick one to be predominant and then the other one will be like secondary but right now I'm kind of letting them go their own directions and then see which one works out better and then maybe I'll shift over to that
2: my understanding was that comics do pay a lot less than uh, tabletop RPG stuff and tabletop RPG stuff is already known for paying poorly
1: um, I wouldn't say that they pay worse I actually would I would say that tabletop RPG stuff pays worse on the whole than comics, at least in my experience. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's true for the whole market, if that makes any sense.
2: Well, the thing, the weird thing we were talking about this last week, the weird thing about uh, the tabletop industry is that the companies will pay half one-tenth as much as a private client. So it's hard to talk about prices comparatively With we were talking about industry prices of tabletop RPG or uh, private clients of tabletop RPG or comics which I imagine is mostly uh, professional stuff
1: that pays. Um, most of mine have been independents. So that's another thing where it's like kind of hard to compare. Cause maybe I got good clients. Other people have less uh, financially stable clients.
0: I'm not sure. Do you plan on staying more in the independent? As far as comics are concerned, do you plan on staying more in the independent world or do you have aspirations of, um, well I don't know what the, the right way to put that is because I don't want to say you know <laughs> higher, no, I know what you mean and I don't want to you know uh, belittle anybody's efforts at all you know but there's certainly no, I, certainly I there's the you know the typical names that every, you know is like held in like oh my god it's the this is the the, the gods of comics or whatever so
1: I thought that I would want to work for like a bigger publisher um, but I got the opportunity to do a test script for Marvel a couple years ago and that whole process was not uh, something that I enjoyed so uh, that kind of cured me of that a little bit Um, and I would probably try working for other publishers um, but right now I'm Not having trouble finding clients that are willing to pay my rates so uh, i haven't really
0: thought to branch out yet
2: that sounds like it's time to raise your rates then
0: agreed agreed yeah we were talking a little bit about this before the the podcast started recording um and rates and finding your way in rates and obviously you can be as vague or as specific as as you want but i guess i would sort of uh, skirt the the topic by asking how do you determine you know what a fair asking rate is for comics I mean, the i mean in, in the freelance illustration you know in the commi- the commission world it's notorious for undercharging people just racing to the bottom do you find something similar in like the independent comic world or is it there like more of an understanding of what's going to be expected on the part of the publisher to pay um so that's a little bit difficult for me to
1: answer, only because I'm part of like a network of independent comic artists. Uh, so like we all talk about our prices pretty freely. Um, so it's and we we've already been through the like building up to like where we are now. So like we got all of the um, underselling ourselves. Well, I mean. We're artists, so we probably always undersell ourselves to some extent. But um, yeah, I lost my train of thought on that one.
0: But well, you were saying that you're sort of in this network, so you you've already kind of like worked through the pitfalls of undercharging. So it's you were saying it's a little harder for you to answer the question of, um, you know, what's a what's a fair rate or avoiding unfair rates. Yeah, so,
1: like, I guess what I wanted to touch on was just, like, it's always difficult to figure out what your rate is for any freelance art or freelance anything, I would assume. Um, And I think it's just, like, figuring out the time invested in the comic page that you're going to do and then uh, figuring out a price per page and then extrapolating that out to whatever the project size is. Um, So, like, comics are normally charged by page rate if... Uh, people weren't aware of that Um, and just figuring out your your speed is basically how you figure out your price Uh, like most comic artists can do like one to two pages a day for inks Um, some are faster some are slower but um, their page rates I assume would reflect that
0: that's a that's a page a day pencils and inks
1: these days, if they're doing it digitally, yes.
0: Because really you don't
1: you don't really have to do like a lot of penciling if you're gonna be doing your own inking digitally. And like digital inks, like you can just erase them anyway. So it's yeah, basically fair. penciling inking at the same time. Whereas my, my good friend Walter Osley says pence inkling.
0: <laughs> yeah, ink ink doesn't have the same no. No anyway. Well, what, what is a fair rate? Like if you're, if you were new to this and you had, didn't have the network that you're already in and you were searching around for information, what would you, you know, or what would you tell somebody in that position to look for as far as, you know, a fair going rate? Uh, I would say it's that, that one's really hard
1: just, it's hard to tell anybody what their rate should be. Right. But, um,
0: I, I, guess, I, like a, them, I guess like, I guess like, a you know, like we often tell people like don't charge yourself less than minimum wage. Yeah. So that, I, so, that was
1: basically going to be my advice okay. was like, figure out minimum wage, what your minimum wage is. Cause you might live in some other part of the country or, or some other part of the world. Um, and then figure out how long it takes and do the math. And that's what I would charge if I was going into this. Um, though people in other parts of the world can, I think you should just use the American number, honestly, because like just set the client doesn't bar know. there. Yeah. The client doesn't know, so that's fine. Exactly.
0: Well, and I mean, you know, most, prob- probably most publishing is going to be done within the Western world. So it's like, get that Western money. Don't undercharge yourself because you live in Sri Lanka. You know, if you're if your publisher is in L.A., charge L.A. prices. That's seems reasonable, right?
1: Right. That does make sense. And yeah, it always kills me when I see people charging like way less because they can basically. I mean, we've we've all talked about this. I'm sure it's come up many times in this podcast. Yes,
0: always. It's always worth bringing up again (laughs) to maybe I can't speak for Moose. It never gets old for me to talk about again
2: but we brought you up here to, uh, talk about your uh, latest Kickstarter. Uh, had you done any Kickstarters prior to this one?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I did a Kickstarter for a coloring book, um, based on my Mechadoodle series. Um, that was like two years ago. It's called the Techno Necronomicon and, um, yeah. Was there any other part of the question?
2: No. Uh, so what did you learn, uh, from doing the first one that, uh, was like a hard knocks you had to have learned the hard way type of thing
1: um i think i'm trying to think of like stuff that i learned that applied to this one because it was it was a little bit different right because i was providing a physical copy of something and it was a coloring book so like not related at all to tabletop rpgs um but i think the biggest thing is probably something that is probably one of the first things that you learn when researching kickstarters is like your first day is like really important. So you want to make sure that you like build up to that first day with all of your advertising and all of your, uh, like getting, getting the word out about your project and make sure that everybody knows that you're going to be starting on, you know, when it comes out and for everybody to get on board as soon as possible to make sure that your project gets seen by as many people as possible on Kickstarter.
2: Did, uh, doing a physical goods, uh, Kickstarter the first time around make you want to err towards uh, offering a digital t- one this time around?
1: Yeah, I, I'd be lying if I said that it didn't because it, it simplifies the process a lot by keeping it digital. Um, and also, I, I feel really bad about not offering the product to people that are outside of the United States, but the, sh- the whole shipping aspect of Kickstarters is like such a nightmare that I don't even know if I want to get involved with that. But, um, so that was another part of it is like trying to make sure that it's universally available.
2: Uh, Liat has another good question from chat. Uh, why did you choose Kickstarter over Indiegogo? Did you look into alternatives to Kickstarter first?
1: I looked into it and it seemed like Kickstarter had the biggest audience, um, from what I could tell for tabletop RPG stuff. And so if if that's where people go to find the stuff that you're selling, you should probably be looking there.
2: Have you done any other uh, merch uh, sales or was the uh, coloring book the first thing?
1: Uh, the coloring book was the first thing and it, I kind of used it as like a way to kind of uh, pay for some overhead and so that I could start doing conventions. Unfortunately, right when that happened is when this all hit. It's a story that we've all heard a million times. Um, but uh, I have t-shirts uh, t-shirts that you buy from like Threadless and T-Public. Um, I haven't really pushed them very much um, because I just am terrible with social media. But um, they're out there. So if you like the whole Mechadoodle stuff, you can find all that stuff uh, either through my Twitch page or my Linktree or uh, there'll probably be a link down below.
2: I hear that uh, Amazon's merch is the uh, smoothest sailing after you get in, like it's hard to get in, but after you do get in, it tends to pay the bills a little bit more.
1: I haven't looked into that, but I guess I should check that out. So thanks for the tip.
2: Yep, uh, I think I've mentioned that a few times in this podcast, but um, it's just hard to uh, it's hard to get in. So uh, there are videos on YouTube of like how to get in. That's is, the type of
0: yeah. Is it different than the Amazon affiliate program, or is it connected?
2: The affiliate program is just basically you post a link. And then they give you a cut of that sale. With uh, merch, they actually put it on the website for you, on Amazon's website for you. And then, so instead of selling on T or red, Redbubble.com or anything else I can't pronounce right now, .com, uh, it's Amazon.com. And there's a specific way to uh, that it's viewed on their website. Uh, it's shown in the same search results as everything else, but it has a different icon. So, uh, so you can, so after you're you're in, you can recognize what your peers are. But before then, to you, me, or uh, anyone, it's going to look like uh, just another item on the Amazon store page.
1: And that's print-on-demand kind of stuff?
2: Yep. You don't uh, touch anything other than the check they send you.
0: Sounds awesome. Yeah, some people are getting hyped on that in chat. So we'll have to do a future episode on the Amazon how-to but uh coming back to kickstarter for you ethan what what was your lead up to this one since you've already done one before um did you feel like you kind of had it all worked out like what your game plan would be or did you do any sort of preliminary legwork to get ready for this one since we're making a slightly different kind of product
1: so i felt like i kind of had an idea of what what was going to happen once the kickstarter launched and i i had an idea like that i wanted to talk about it publicly like before it happened to kind of like ramp up to the launch um but before i even did any of that i had to make the thing that i was going to kickstart um so like there was a long period of like development and then i had to start making art and then i, I was sharing the art but i kind of realized that like i was sharing it too early because Like I was sharing it like four months before I was going to launch. And at that point, people are like, okay, yeah, I'll just file that away in the back of my mind. And then they'll just forget it. Um, And then by the time that you're actually launching, they'll be like, oh yeah, that art stuff. I already checked it out, but they didn't. Um, So like next time I'll probably save all, like I'll build up art and then start posting like a couple weeks in advance and then launch that way.
2: How early in advance can you uh, set up the uh, Kickstarter page so that you can send people to uh, uh, what's the term for it when they want to say they want
1: to do it in advance? Um, I think that there, I don't know that there is a limit. I haven't, I didn't really look into it because of the way that I ended up going about launching, but um, yeah, it, I think it's a good idea to set that up beforehand. So, you know, if there's interest uh, before you even launch.
2: Right. So every, like you are if you're uh promoting for it once in advance you can at least have a link to the kickstarter thing then and have them start What whatever the pledge pre-pledged stuff is for what the term for it is
0: i think they can just follow it right follow now.
2: that's the word i was looking for yeah
0: yeah from from my experience you can set up that um landing page the initial kickstarter landing page for your project pretty much like whenever uh, yeah and then like you were saying you use that link in all of your promotional material and people just like follow it for when it actually goes live
2: so is there any downside to doing it way too early like let's say you have this idea that you want to do a kickstarter you don't have it ready yet like you don't have all the drawings done is there a downside to starting to send people to that page in advance
1: i don't i wouldn't imagine so as long as you have something to show so that it looks like a finished page like you wouldn't want to send somebody to to a thing that has like some just you know uh fill in image or like a really quick thing that you did but um yeah that sounds like something that you'd probably want to do early yeah
0: as long as it's like a fully conceived idea you know and it's like a it's a thing and you're going to be able to you know fill promotional material with content from the coming kickstarter between Time that you put that page up, and when you're otherwise it's what Ethan just said, people are just gonna file they'll they'll see it, they'll look at it, maybe they'll even follow, and then they'll forget about it. so even when the going live thing comes up they it might have like gone so far down their list of priorities that but if you can keep pushing up and pushing up the the hype on it with like awesome material, then that's awesome. so what was your hype train like like what kind of things were you doing to get the ball rolling?
1: So I, I initially was thinking that I was going to bring on more people that have already done tabletop RPG stuff um, to work on the project with me. But then I realized when I was doing that, that um, due to the nature of the thing that I was building, I didn't really have room to bring people in as much as I thought I did. Um, so I didn't end up going with that um, uh, as a way to like get the net wider. But um, the way that I was, the way that I tried to promote it was just um, be- becoming a lot more active on Twitter um, because on, like, Instagram, for example, there's n- no off-site interaction that I've found, really. Um, so, like, I kind of ignored Instagram, and I just promoted on, like, like posting in Discords, posting on Reddit, posting, uh, like, the art, that is. Um, and on Twitter and trying to become more active within the tabletop communities on Reddit or I mean on, well on Reddit and also on Twitter um, to try to start getting the word out.
0: Yeah. Your success story is uh, encouraging, um, you know, because it shows that you, you, you don't, you don't have to have like the tens of thousands of followers on Instagram or Twitter or whatever to, to make it work, you know, like, You and I are in the same pool of artists that you know are sort of like in that lower mid range of artists on social media, and it's like, yeah, we 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 got a fair amount of following, but it's not not necessarily you know the the biggest. Um, and but you can still make that work for you. And I guess maybe even the argument could be made that might be, well, I don't know if it's better to have a smaller following in this regard, but the people that are following you are definitely gonna be like really into your stuff, Oh? You know?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that doing this Kickstarter actually built my following on Twitter quite a bit, actually. So it kind of goes back and forth in that regard. Too. Did you
2: ever feel bad about uh, tweeting so much?
1: Yes, that's something like with social media, like in my normal day-to-day life, I, I don't really, I talk as little as possible and like keep to myself um, so like the idea of going on social media all the time and like, it feels like that I'm pestering people, even though we all know that on social media, it feels like you're just yelling into the darkness, but that's like totally opposite my nature Hell, just like talking this much in front of people is totally against my nature. Um, but, uh, something that every freelance artist needs to do, you know, to kind of get out there.
0: When Twitter seems a bit more friendly to that.
1: Yeah, well. definitely.
0: Like the the multiple postings a day and at different times of day too. I have nothing to back this up, so this could just be strictly incorrect intuition. But it's sh- I mean it that's how I'm me- talking
1: this whole thing.
0: You know? <laughs> it strikes me that, or I, I, I should say, at least I haven't noticed any you know negative drawbacks to multiple postings or posting at lots of different times of day because I've only noticed my engagement go up just from doing that you know so it's like you if you post in the morning and you post in the afternoon and you post in the evening the algorithm isn't smashing you for that and then you're hitting lots of different time zones and you know areas in the world and different following groups and even retweeting your posts from like earlier in the day so that new people will see it and the old people probably won't even see it anymore unless they're only following like 50 people it's like cool great go for it
1: Yeah. I think because of the nature of Twitter, how like, like you just look at your feed and it's just like a bunch of stuff. It's so easy to miss things that like, like on the days that I was most active, I was posting like once every hour, hour and a half, I would be posting about it. Uh, and I would still be getting like new interactions because like, I don't know about you guys, but when I go onto Twitter, I see maybe 50 posts, maybe like that's, if I'm really trying to go for (laughs) it, uh, but other than that, like I'm not really seeing that much, you know? And right. fifty isn't that many. Uh
2: the weird thing is like on Twitter I will follow, you know, I follow like two thousand people. So even when I there's somebody who I interact with every time I see their one of their posts, there'll be some days where I'll see them retweet one of their prior tweets or reply to a prior tweet. Like, I didn't see this at all that day. But then maybe I only went on that Twitter twice that day, so I missed that post. So you're just Always trying to hit a bunch of moving targets, and you never know which ones you're going to hit when you start throwing this stuff out there.
1: And I think that's really kind of encouraging, at least for me, as somebody who feels like that they're being annoying. It's kind of like a ver- uh, validation that you're not being annoying. That you're 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 actually not even re- you're not even yelling at the people that you think that you're yelling at. You're just kind of like, hey. Even though it feels to you, it feels like you're constantly like, hey, look at my stuff. Hey, look at my stuff. Hey, look at my stuff. To them, it's just like. They saw one out of your 20 tweets. Right. Funny
2: enough, uh, the Twitter algorithm also changed in the middle of your, uh, your Kickstarter. Did you notice that?
1: I did. I did notice that. I, I wasn't really sure what changed exactly, but it, I definitely noticed a change because it seemed like I was getting some like, a fair amount of interaction at the early part between Twitter and my Kickstarter, and then like I'd say like a week through it seemed to fall out. I don't really know when that change dropped. but
2: Were you always starting with an image for your, uh, your posts? Yeah. That's the thing that changed. It went from being an image-focused algorithm to if you post an image, they're going to prioritize that into your feed, to a text-focused um, algorithm. So now when I load up Twitter, the first page of tweets are all just text. The first, time, few, the first day or two that that happened, I thought, huh, am I in a thread right now? Did I click into a, a tweet thread with, by mistake? Because it's all text. But no, it's just a bunch of different individual tweets that are all text. So they're trying to prioritize discussion now instead of just look at this image, like this image, slide. That's it. Right.
1: That's, that's interesting. Because it, like, I don't know about you guys, but when I look at my Twitter feed and it's all a bunch of text, it kind of just feels like a wall of text that's like impenetrable. Yeah,
0: I don't so know like, why they would want to do that. Like, Why? What would the rationale be there?
1: I mean, maybe just because we're visual people, that's how we think. But maybe other people interact why, more. I thought way. the
0: whole Internet, I mean, wall of text is, you know, a cliche meme for a reason. Like, don't do that to me. Don't don't wall of text me. True. Bro.
1: <laughs> Very true.
2: But you didn't catch onto that during the uh, Kickstarter to make it take advantage of it, though. You didn't know. To no, start but I, the
1: text. I I did try a bunch of different styles of posts, um, but I didn't notice that pattern emerge for my stuff. And I don't know, maybe all the people that I follow don't like weren't doing a lot of text-based posting, so that didn't happen. Because like when I was op- when I I mean when I opened Twitter today, it, like I saw a bunch of images and stuff. So. I don't know.
2: Interesting. Maybe they're uh, changing it out for different people because they're testing which one works better. That's A-B testing. It's what the industry does.
1: Could be. Could be.
0: So I had a, a question for you that it, it more calls back to the, um, the Kickstarter that you had done before. Um, and I just remembered <laughs> I never responded to your survey. With a coloring book (laughs) so i still haven't got that coloring book anyway uh gonna do that as soon as as yeah you should hit me up after the (laughs) this thing so glad we did this so i could remember that um anyway so yeah this goes back to that that kickstarter where you were actually making a physical product that you were gonna have to mail um uh and you mentioned it you touched on it a little bit before where you're just like i don't want to deal with shipping anymore but I I, I want to bring it up just because we're talking about Kickstarter. It is a thing. Not everybody's going to do a, a digital product. So um, while we can, let's talk a little bit about um, well, generally your uh, your challenging experiences. I would like to hear generally about like any sort of you know um, wrinkles that you had to figure out how to iron out, and in particular this shipping thing. What's what's going on there?
1: <laughs> so so luckily. I got very lucky in that I didn't. I didn't really have any wrinkles with my first Kickstarter because I had already known a bunch of people that had just done Kickstarters, so they kind of like preempted me with any sort of issues. And also, um, some of my friends just are very experienced with like mailing a bunch of stuff, so that was handled pretty easily. But the tricky part about shipping with Kickstarter is that the shipping cost that you charge factors into the funding goal. So, like, if you, if you had a, a goal for $200, right, and your product costs $10, but for some reason you're, you're shipping this thing to Mars or whatever, and it costs $200, the first person who from Mars who orders it pays $10 uh, and then $200 for shipping, and now you're over your funding goal, and you're only making t- $10 minus whatever Kickstarter is taking out of it minus whatever you paid to make it so like international shipping is crazy expensive like i use that 200 figure because it's kind of ridiculous but seriously i when i was doing my coloring book um i knew somebody in canada who was like hey i want to back your kickstarter but obviously i can't because you have it turned uh international shipping turned off and i was like well like i know you so like i'll look into the shipping and then we can just like you can just pay me and i'll mail it to you And I looked into it and it was $25 to ship my coloring book to Canada. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how I factor that in.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't want to cut you off if you still had more. No, that's pretty much it. I, so I I just recently wrapped up a, a Kickstarter too. And in work trying to figure everything out, the, the shipping thing in particular was so baffling and i was asking around i was asking people what's up with this shipping because you know they have the little spreadsheet thing that they want you to fill out to estimate your funding goal and shipping is a line item in that spreadsheet but i i was under the impression that they would charge the person making the pledge for the shipping when they made the pledge so i couldn't understand like why there was this line item for it in the spreadsheet estimation but they're going to be charging people for it. And it's not until afterwards that I'm like, Oh, like you just said, it's gets factored. But why do they do that? I don't that. I don't understand why they do that.
1: I can't tell you. I haven't heard anybody tell me like I've asked around. I've looked for it. I I don't know why they would possibly. I can't. Maybe they don't want to be liable for people not paying for the sh-
0: shipping. I have no idea. Well, it just seems easy. It's like, there's the pledge, and then there's the shipping.
2: I imagine but, it's so they can get a cut of the shipping. Uh, and So 5% of that doesn't sound like very much from one person, but when you add it up through across all Kickstarters ever, that 5% of the shipping going to Kickstarter.
0: You smart, this. That kind of sounds fucked up, though. Like, I, it's I a little bit
2: like uh, the Superman scheme or uh, Office Space.
0: What, what is that?
2: Where they uh, round off fractions of a cent from every transaction, and then they end up with millions of dollars.
0: It seems shady though. Like that doesn't, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like shipping should, they should have a right to the shipping costs.
2: Uh, Until uh, there's a competitor that uh, overwhelms them. Like if Indiegogo doesn't and Indiegogo becomes the the success, the success story of Kickstarter of, uh, you know, crowdfunding then uh, Kickstarter can keep doing it.
1: Yeah. So Indiegogo, if you're listening, like I know you are offer me separate shipping from the funding goal and I'll be there for whenever I do uh, physical copies of things.
0: So do you think that you'll just never do a physical copy of something again?
1: No, I, I will just, if I do, it'll probably only be within the continental United States, unless I get to a point where I'm willing to take on that risk of like, maybe all of my backers will come from India or something and I have to ship it and it's going to cost me, a million dollars to ship things, but yeah.
2: So on the practical side of things, uh, you wanted to have an, an it, It's beneficial to have a nice uh, page on your Kickstarter. Like, how much time did you put into uh, working on this the landing page?
1: Uh, making all those graphics and things, I would say, like in total, probably like a week of time. So like, probably over forty hours, like creating the like I had a stretch goal thing. I had a rewards graphic. I had my biographic. I had like the, um, like the title page thing. I don't remember what they call it. The header, the Kickstarter header. Um, and plus I changed it like halfway through. Um, yeah, I, I would say that I spent like probably a good week of my time doing that.
2: And that's some weird, uh, thing that you don't really consider about, right? When you're, putting in the price of the the Kickstarter, right? It'll take me a week to do, but if you only, if your goal is only a hundred dollars for the Kickstarter and you make a hundred dollars and you're like, well, I spent a week and I made a hundred dollars.
1: Yeah. And I even, I was able to recycle some of my other art to like use for that stuff. But some people don't have that option. Granted, some of the people probably have less time consuming options than to like do these little machine things everywhere. But um it's kind of my brand so i had to go with it
0: that is also a line item in the in the spreadsheet when they're asking you to estimate your funding goal they suggest that you make an estimate for um like administrative costs research development like all of those things but that's uh, that's another thing that's a little bit um brow wrinkling for me when i'm looking at it because it's like I don't know, like how like until you've actually like done all of that.
1: Well, or I guess I maybe if you have point, a lot
0: of experience with Kickstarters in the past, maybe would, it would be easier for you to do that. But yeah, go ahead.
1: There's nothing stopping you from creating your whole Kickstarter page before you figure out your budget, right? So, well, yeah, that's that's
0: true. Okay,
1: yeah, but that's how I would do it.
2: Was there anything else that was a considerable uh, time sink or investment before uh, launching the Kickstarter?
0: Uh, I
1: almost forgot. Push to talk. Um, the, the the biggest time sink was just, you know, like making the product, really, and then like the art. Um, but no, I, I can't really think of. Oh, you know what? I made like a little video. Um, and, like, learning the video software, like, I've done some video editing stuff, but, like, learning little things about video editing um, took me a lot longer than I anticipated, for sure.
2: And there are um, people out there who do video editing for uh, stuff like this. And it may be $100, but if it's $100 instead of a week of your time, it's probably worth it.
1: Yeah, I, I almost did hire somebody to do that. But at the same time, I was like, I'm going to be doing more of this stuff. So I, I just... Need to like learn it, and it was it was fun for me, honestly, to like try and figure out how to do it. So, yeah.
2: So, you uh, finished the product before you even launched. You did the launch page and all that stuff before you launched. You did all, a lot of marketing before you launched. Um, how much time do you would you estimate in total you had spent before you even cl- clicked the go live button?
1: Months of time. So. Yeah, like, probably four months of time.
2: So are we are talking, like, 400
1: hours? Is that appropriate? or Yeah, probably more than that. Because I did, like, I made all the stuff, I tested it, I, like, made a whole playtest server on Discord, I got a bunch of people in, and I ran a bunch of games and stuff, plus all the art that I did, plus doing all the research of, like, looking into other Kickstarters that did similar things, what they did, what they didn't do, did it affect things, how did they go about finding their their uh, consumer base and all that stuff?
2: Were you doing other projects while you were uh, working on this, like doing other things to make it money?
1: I was I was doing smaller commissions in between, like in my free time. Whenever whenever I would get to the point where it's like, all right, I can't even look at Kickstarter right now. Like I can't even look at it. All right, I'll just do this commission of this orc or whatever, um, and. So but luckily I was in a position to do something like that and there was no deadline for any of those things.
2: Right so just to be clear everything was done prior to the launch. So it's more of a kick finisher than a kick launcher or kickstarter.
1: It was it was like 90% of the way there. So yeah. I mean that's that's how Kickstarter works unfortunately these days. It's like you got to be pretty much done with whatever you're going to be launching otherwise you kind of run the risk of having issues and you want to have like as much stuff as possible to like show your backers so that they are going to want to get in on it, you know, and like hiding anything or like not having things done and not being able to show it is just lost marketing assets basically.
2: So you're still going to maybe disappoint them when they get the book and all the assets they've already seen.
1: Um, I didn't show them the rules or anything like that. Like I showed them some rule stuff, but I didn't show them everything. Like I showed them and I showed them most of the art, but not all of it. So I tried to keep some things, but not a lot because in reality, like it's not like they're gonna pay you less because you, di- you didn't have a big reveal when they got the PDF, right? They wanna know what they're paying for and that's what they're paying for, so yeah.
0: So with all of this in mind, you know, what your product's gonna be, how much work you're going to put into it, what you want to get out of it. What were you, what, how did you decide what your funding goal could, should be?
1: So I, I tried to factor in like my time spent on the art and all that, uh, the art, the, uh, the play test, the research, uh, well, less the research, because I kind of figured that I would recoup that over the course of like, all the Kickstarters that I will ever run, you know? So, like, that was less of a factor. Um, So, art, playtest, the writing, um, advertising, uh, and um, I actually, I had a consultant uh, for this project as well. Um, So, I also factored that into the ending goal. There's also a weird thing that happens with uh, the funding goal where, Like, if you get funded faster, then Kickstarter will promote your project. So I ended up uh, cutting back my funding goal and just, like, crossing my fingers, basically, that I would get to the point that I wanted to get to.
2: I was going to say, because for 400 hours, uh, the initial goal was less than 2000 So you had seriously docked that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I actually reached the funding goal that I originally had put down as, like, this is what I actually want to make, and I basically just squeaked across the line with that, which I think is in part because I set my funding goal lower, which is counterintuitive, and I don't really like. But yeah, so is.
2: the lesson is that you should have set the um, target goal at one hundred dollars, so then you could have hit that within thirty minutes or ten minutes, and then uh, it would have you know started flooding you with uh fuse sooner.
1: Maybe. I don't know if there's diminishing returns on that. I, I'd actually be really curious to run that experiment on Kickstarter to see if that actually affects the algorithm at all.
2: Yeah, I think we talked about this earlier with um, uh, uh, Gavin and Blake. I almost said Blavin, and that would have been really embarrassing. <laughs> and um, <Dick. laughs> but But uh, w- we mentioned that uh, they, they could send, set the goal artificially really low. But, and then if it didn't reach the amount that you thought that it would, that it should hit, then you could cancel the Kickstarter, but that might only work once. If you keep doing that, the people that follow you might set, uh, sense a pattern and think that you're up to some cheesy stuff and decide not to back your next project. So it is a tactic, but it would only work once.
1: Yeah. And I, I was, you know, I actually considered like that kind of tactic, but I was just really worried that it would turn against me. Um, Cause it's, I mean, just inconveniencing people th- that they have to re-back the project, like, that would frustrate me. Maybe enough to not back it the second time. So that was my thought process
2: on that. There was a, another Kickstarter that happened after yours, and it, I think it was called, like, Bloodstone or something. It, was, it had this amazing trailer, well-animated. Uh, it was a board game with, you know, miniatures and everything. It had a, uh, a goal of, like, $50,000, and it hit that.
0: And he's gone. And and the and the Kickstarter mafia sweeps in and <laughs> boots Moose into the ether.
1: They used that fifty grand to come into this call right now and boot Moose out.
2: I told secrets I shouldn't have been told. It was a bloodstone <laughs> thing. But no, uh they uh, cancelled the pro- they canceled it after they hit the funding goal because it wasn't going high enough. So there was some hubbub about that on Twitter. But since it was a small enough project, they got away with it it wasn't a blizzard
1: right it's a weird thing like should you be penalized for playing the game that kickstarter set up i don't know
0: if you you set up perverse incentives people are going to take advantage of it and 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 not even like bad people like i mean like you're you're a cool dude i know you and even you you're like "Ah, i thought about using that tactic the minute that you're talking about like Tactics, then you're automatically in this like weird cynical kind of world, and it's like, well, you gotta like hold on to your soul, your artistic soul. But um, I wanted to know about uh this consulting. You hired a consultant. What what did that entail?
1: Yeah. So um, initially, when I was thinking that I wanted to bring in more people into the project, well, first of all, um, you guys had um, dropped the die on one of your earliest episodes and that's actually what sparked me to make this project Um, so I reached out to him for like if if he could give any thoughts and I got uh, he I did a consult with him like real quick for like an hour or something just to like pick his brain on everything that was on the show but like in more detail more pertinent to my project Um, and then he introduced me to a community of other people that are like uh, looking for work within the tabletop community Uh, space. And so when I went there, that's when I started looking for people to collaborate with on this project that I didn't end up going with, but I'll probably go with on future projects. Um, And one of the people that I uh, hired to do uh, like this short narrative that I'll probably end up using in my next Kickstarter that I do, um, he had done a project that was very successful on Kickstarter, so I was picking his brain about like what he could do. And then he said, Oh, um, like I had never run a tabletop RPG thing before, but I contacted this uh, this consultant and they helped me put this all together and it you know blew up. So I was like, all right, well get me their name and I'll have an interview. And um, it's the, the guys over at uh, Terrific Tabletop is who I used. Uh er, Tabletop Terrors, Wow. Tabletop terrors. I don't know how I got that backwards right there, but um, sorry, Tim. But uh, yeah, they were they were super helpful with like um, just like the checklist beforehand to make sure that I was checking all the boxes for the tabletop community Kickstarter community um, before going, you know, before launching, and also they they helped me when I was unsure of like the wording on something or uh, it's like, should I be posting right now? Should I be doing an update right now? I I don't wanna like harass people. What have you guys experienced? Um, So they were really helpful for that kind of stuff. And then like, I assume that they will be, it seems like they will be helpful when I actually go around to fulfilling the project.
2: Uh, Can you give like a ballpark uh, range of what people would expect if they wanted to go in that route for consulting?
1: Um, yeah, it's for, for, uh, for them, they just took like a very small percentage, um, that I found acceptable. I don't really want to speak numbers cause you know, that's their prerogative. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I found it very reasonable for even, even if all it was, was them just reassuring me that I like that I was doing the right thing. You know yeah. what I mean? Cause it can be hard to find somebody who you can just constantly be bouncing ideas off of, or like. Uh, it's like, is this, is this actually a good idea? I don't even know. And when it's just you, it's so difficult to make that decision. And it's good to just have somebody that could be like, yes or no.
2: Did they help you with uh, finding other people to work on the project with? Or were you solo on this? Like as far as actually putting in like the layout and the text and all that stuff.
1: Um, I was solo. I did. I, I took on a, a layout artist to do like the initial pages, the preview pages um, through uh, tabletop Terrors. but um, I ended up just learning in design afterwards because I figured I'm gonna be doing more projects like this. And there, I have this thing when I'm like working with other people that like when I want to do like little tweaks, it's very. I'm not the kind of person that feels comfortable being like, "Could you just like change that red by like three hues?" Because it's really bugging me. Um. I I always feel like a jerk, but I also wouldn't be able to live with myself if I put it out there and that red was not that three he's different. So um, yeah, so I ended up learning in design, but I did hire somebody for those initial preview pages.
0: You also mentioned advertising. Um, Did you do some and where and how much did you spend on it?
1: So um, the first day I put like 50 bucks into Facebook ads. Um, and got zero return from it. So that kind of just cured me of ever wanting to do ads, um, at least in with that project at that time. When I do another project, I'll probably try something else. But because that was such a fantastical flop, it just totally turned me off to the whole idea of like paying for social media ads or anything like that. If Gavin were
2: here, he'd say that uh, it all depends on how you use the ad system. Like, There's nuances to uh, using it to target the ads to the right people. And if you don't do it the right way, then you get nothing out of it. So he has experience doing that from his marketing background. So he has no problem doing it himself. And he gets money out of his uh, investments. Whereas you and most of us, we throw money into the wind. And then Facebook says, thank you.
1: Exactly. And the thing that bothers me the most about it is they're like, oh, yeah, 2,000 people saw your thing. It's like, oh, really? Well, Kickstarter is telling me that nobody clicked into the Kickstarter so, or, like, backed the Kickstarter from there. So, like, that kind of just makes me feel like crap a little bit. But at the same time, like, just because I saw it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, my Nana saw it. What does that mean?
0: That's, a, that's an interesting uh, point to highlight as well for anybody that's, gonna be new going into a kickstarter is that you can you can monitor your uh um uh impressions impressions analytics but you can you can monitor the analytics is what you're saying um that you can tell where backers came from originally like how they got to your kickstarter
1: yeah so like you have to do it manually basically like you generate a specific url um for each Thing that you want to track, and then you hand out that URL only on that uh, platform. So, like, you'd have like a Facebook link, a Twitter link, Discord, uh, Instagram, all that stuff, and then it'll tell you how many people backed it from that link. So, it's not a perfect system, but it's better than nothing.
0: Yeah, any analytics is good analytics.
1: Yeah, that that was actually one thing that I learned from my first project. I didn't really take advantage of that. And at the end of the project, I was like, man, I really wish that I knew like where I should be uh, marketing myself and having those analytics would really help. So this time I was like on top of it, trying to make a code for every iteration of the things that I was doing.
2: Aside from the ads, was there anything you did to get the
1: first day off to, on the right foot? Um, not really, other than just like yelling it to everyone who would listen. And just be like, go and back this thing. If you're interested, just go and back it. But um my like my personality is very much the opposite of like uh
0: being Buy aggressive. My book. Yeah, Buy exactly. My like, book. I'm
1: Buy the opposite my book. of that. I'm like I'm like somebody brings it up in my chat when I'm like streaming or something. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, guys, if if you want to do the thing, like go and check out my t-shirts or whatever it is but I never think to do it myself. And I feel very uncomfortable doing it. So
2: did you uh, explicitly reach out to friends and family and say, Hey guys, on this date, I'm going to be doing the thing and please back it then. And I'll pay you back if uh, (laughs) during Christmas, if, if, uh, if it gets funded,
1: I didn't go that route. I I did tell everybody. And I I have no shame in saying that a a sizable portion came from my mother that first day. So thanks mom. But uh, I mean, that that's how you got to do it. It's just the people that, you know, who actually want your project or want you to succeed, are gonna. you want to have them back on their first day and then that will uh, get the algorithm on your side for at least that first day.
2: It's a lot like a Twitter, a Twitter post or a Reddit post or Facebook post or anything else, Instagram post, whatever. The earlier the um, interaction is, the more important it is to the algorithm because the algorithm wants to say, this is, this is important, this is not. This is going well, this is not going well, as soon as possible. So the bigger the impact early, the I mean the, the more interactions early, the bigger the impact they are.
1: 100 percent.
2: So within the first five minutes, ideally, but first hour is okay, too, I guess. But first hour is better than the first day,
1: definitely, for sure. And um, like that, that'll be something that in the future it'll be easier to like the more projects that you have within the same vein, the easier that'll be because you have people to call on to cycle through to the next one.
2: The people have already proven that they are willing to give you money for your product.
1: What Moose said, said it way better than me.
0: So now your Kickstarter is off and running. Uh, It's gone live. What is your day to day effort? Like, what is your game plan?
1: So the first day I was on like all the social media that I had and just like constantly trying to like promote it, whether like posting about it, commenting about it, trying to find people who are tr- who are looking for something like that um, on Reddit, like cruising the subreddits, trying to find more subreddits to either post art to or uh, start a discussion that is kind of a, in the area of like the problem that I'm solving or uh, the the thing that I'm trying to do, and. Um, yeah, that was super draining for somebody like me that's that doesn't socialize very much. It's uh, it was rough. <laughs> I would much rather just not talk to anybody and just be drawing.
2: Yeah, I call that social energy. Um, I can deal with like the first half of the day, no problem. I'll be on different t- Twitch streams talking to the people, but by the end of the day, I'm just lurking in all the channels that I'm supporting. That's it. I'm clicking the uh. The treasure chest button to get extra uh channel points and that's all that's my interaction for that for those channels unfortunately i just run out
1: yeah normally i don't even have the energy to like hang out in discord or in uh twitch channels very often. like for very long it's like 10 minutes and then i'm like all right i'm lurking i can't i just don't have the energy
0: was there things that changed over the course of your kickstarter um you know as far as what you were doing day to day or were there things that you had initially started out doing as strategies and then fell off cause they weren't going so well. So, um, like I said, this is really the,
1: so like I said before the Instagram, I kind of just like shoot away and this is the project that kind of like solidified that for me um, because like if I look at my analytics now, I have like two backers from my Instagram. And I know for a fact that those two backers, the only reason that they used that was because I was in a conversation with them on Instagram about it. Like something unrelated, actually. We were talking about things that were unrelated and then it's like, oh yeah, I have a Kickstarter going right now. You can check it out. And they backed it through that. Um, when like, I don't have a huge following there, but my my buddy, uh Laganza, uh, has like 70,000 followers. And he did like this big promotional thing for me, which thank you, Leo. I really appreciate that. But I got no backers from it at all. Zero. Uh, so, you know, presumably 70 or not, not 70,000, but maybe like, you know, three, 5,000 people saw it and nobody clicked on. Was line. it a story or a post? Both. There uh, were, he did like four or five story posts with the slide-up thing for the to see more. And then he did a, a post on his feed with, like, 10 images on it. And, a, like, tagged me, everything, and nothing.
2: So on a, an account of that size, uh, a story will get between, like, 2,000 3,000 views, and a post will get somewhere between... It's going to be a large number. Between 30,000 and 500,000 views. So it's a lot of people that are seeing it and Instagram is an Island that people do not get off of.
1: And before people come up with the, the solution that like, it's not related. Like his stuff is very similar to what I do. Just he doesn't do the mechanical stuff as much. He does a lot of monster stuff. So like, but there's a lot of crossover there. I think I would assume that there'd be a lot of crossover. So, I mean, you can go and check it out yourself, but
2: no, I think it's very much Instagram Island. That's what it is. It's, there's no, people don't swipe up and they don't click links that are in profiles. So the we best have, you can do is have a relationship with them that makes them driven to leave the, uh, the platform by cl- typing a URL themselves. And that's very rare unless it's some artist like uh, uh, Jamila Khanf. I think she's the only one that has made successful on Instagram that I can think of off the top of my head.
0: At. Or Dave Cave, <laughs> when he was on, he seemed to have. Yeah. Um, a lot of positive things to say about how Instagram worked for him. But I think that that's I mean, he you know, he's got like 150,000 followers, and I think that's the numbers that you push up into when you hit a threshold where you know, it's like if it's if it's one in a hundred, that's not doing you know, anything for you if you only have a thousand followers. But right. one in a hundred when you have a hundred thousand. Okay, now that's that's uh, doing something. For Dave you, was something.
2: also drawing attractive women fan art, which people are a lot more motivated to uh to seek out and pay for
0: i don't understand why that. Good question (laughs) Um, the world will never know so what were the standout success like what were the things that uh stand out in your memory as far as like oh those were those are some winning winning moves
1: so uh one of them i kind of stumbled into which was i just randomly like put a tweet out on a Thursday night after midnight, I was like, Hey, I'm looking for people that uh, like, where do you get your homebrew D and D stuff? And then I woke up in the morning and there was like, I don't know, 70 alerts or something like that. And I was like, what, what happened? What did I do? And you're canceled. Yeah. (laughs) What happened was I unknowingly stumbled into this tabletop community Thing I mean it's, it's in every community, but like the Follow Friday thing, and so like everyone was linking everyone, and so they like I had a bunch of that's how I got like into one of the circles of D D tabletop RPG groups on Twitter, um, and so that led to I don't I don't know maybe like maybe a dozen backers through like through that interaction, um, but it really showed me that like being interactive with the community on Twitter and like asking questions rather than just being like, here's my stuff, check it out. Buy my book, yeah. buy my book. Gets a lot more reaction than the buy my book thing. Um.
2: Yeah, I think Brian mentioned it earlier, uh, Brian Perry, the uh, director of marketing for d d He said either be uh, educational or be entertaining and that's how you uh, get people's attention. Yeah, my is not either of those.
1: Agreed. Like, for the most part, because I don't really have the energy to, like, constantly be thinking of, like, these questions to be asking the greater community, um, a lot of it was just, like, here's my thing. I don't know. If you see it and you like it, check it out. But as much as I could, as much as I could muster the energy for, I would try and, like, ask questions and engage with, like, go on other people's tweets and, like, engage with them. Um, which I think led to um, more reach than I would have had.
0: Well, maybe this kind of ties into what our next question was, which uh, was the observation that kind of like in the middle of your Kickstarter, uh, you had a uptick, an upswing in the funding per day, per, per day per day. Um, That's per day, <laughs> and, and usually uh, the Kickstarter graph is bull shaped where it's like a big spike at the beginning really flat in the middle and then a spike at the end. Um, Do you you think it was that little Twitter engagement or or what happened there in the middle?
1: No I think um, that was actually when I hit my funding goal so I think what happened was that the Instagram uh, the Instagram the Kickstarter algorithm like promoted me as like hey this just got funded check it out Um, so also, I think, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but I know that people get emails from Kickstarter if they're, like, super backers or whatever, and it'll be like, hey, these are projects that you might be interested in. So it might have come up there. But that was a very surreal experience to, like, be in the middle of the project where I was expecting a dip and then having, like, my second biggest day. Uh, I was I was like, is this, like, a trend that's going to continue? Because if so, that's going to be insane. Um, but it, it kind of like went up and then it, the rest of the project went higher than it. The average was higher than previous to that. So um I was pretty happy about that.
2: Yeah, and there's a good tool for tracking this with, it's called kicktrack.com instead of kickstarter.com. And you can check this for any project. It doesn't have to be your own. You can check it for other people's projects. So I was uh tailing along with um, Ethan. and I was like, Hey, this is going really well. Look at this day. This day is great. Isn't it? What'd you do differently? And he's like, I did nothing different. It's just like well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like maybe that was like who who knows? Maybe it was a perfect storm of like that tweet plus the the funding goal. Honestly, it's been so long that I don't really remember how what the the time frame was there. But it was fairly close in that time frame that I was getting into that circle, so maybe maybe it was both coming together at the same time. I'm not really sure.
0: How far into the campaign did your project get funded?
1: I think it was, uh, 16 days, 13 days, something like that. But yeah. It I was about
0: halfway it. through. Yeah. So what did you do after that? Was it just, were you just like pushing for stretch goals or what was your yeah, motivation it, after that? Like after you wow, I got all my money, what do I need to do now? So well, I, I didn't view it as, Hey,
1: I got my money. It was all right. We're locked in. like we got the funding goal where at least I'm at least getting paid this much to do the jo- the work that I already did. Right. Um, but that kind of, it kind of reinvigorated me to like get back on social media and like start promoting again, hardcore. Um, and I just really like the whole, for the whole Kickstarter, I pretty much just focused on the art. Like I probably should have said this way earlier, but like, that's like the biggest thing that everyone has always told me. And what I want to make sure that I tell anyone who's listening to this that wants to do a Kickstarter is, like, focus on the art because the art's going to sell your project more than anything, period. So um, I was just trying to crank out as much art as possible and, like, put it out there so that people would see it and then be like, oh, that's a thing that I like. Like, I I like the idea of these tribal people with cyber limbs. Uh, How do I make that happen for me? It's like, well, check out this link.
2: Were the stretch goals already completed? Like, were they like faux stretch goals? Like, you had already drawn up this stuff, and uh, that was just like a, something that you're pointing out that you've done.
1: Um, in a way, they were faux stretch goals. Um, they could have been like, if I didn't reach those stretch goals, I could have just made another project. Like, I already had a lot of the rules for most of the stuff, but I didn't really have a lot of the art for the stretch goals. So, like during the the last few weeks is when I was making the art for the the stretch goal material. Um, But before then they were kind of just like in the PDF because I thought of them while I was making it. And it was kind of just like, all right, well, we'll leave this out so that when we get to the Kickstarter, if I want to do stretch goals, uh, I can add them in afterwards. Because I think it feels like stretch goals incentivize people to back even after the funding goal. Um, or back earlier than they would have otherwise.
2: It's it sounds a little bit uh, sketchy, but it really isn't. It's not like it's a day one DLC that you're uh, paying on top of a sixty dollars game, right? You're paying for the uh, for the um, for the book, and you're paying the same amount, but you're getting more just because more people are buying it. That's it.
1: Yeah, if anything, it's like it's worse for me, right, to be doing these stretch goals in some ways because I'm adding more for the same price. Whereas I could have just broken it into two Kickstarters or, or three actually. Uh, and it, who knows, maybe that would have been better. I don't know, but I was having fun. So that's what I did.
2: You get carried away. You're like, I can offer them something, something they want. And that feels good.
1: Yeah. And like reaching those stretch goals is kind of like a, a little, you know, drop of dopamine to get you through the next thing for me as the creator. So I think it's useful on both ends for that.
0: So now we've sort of gone from beginning to middle, and we're closing on on the end. What is the end of your Kickstarter consist of?
1: Well, at that point, I was running pretty low on social energy, as Moose was saying earlier. Um, I was I was pretty well tapped out, um, like. Uh, I'd say a week before the end of my Kickstarter I was my brain just could not come up with like any new thing to do um but I just kept you know posting on Twitter and tr- trying to be engaged uh trying to join like discords to like get in touch with more people and like see what they're doing and that kind of stuff um but uh I don't I didn't do anything that was especially successful at last week. I didn't feel like. Um, yeah, I guess I guess that's my answer to that. And so It's probably not the answer you wanted, but it's, it's the honest one.
2: It sounds like that's the uh, normal uptick at the end of the uh, um, campaign where people see that the campaign is ending soon. So they have another category that they're searching and finding it there. So that's where the additional backers came from.
1: Yeah, luckily... Luckily the algorithm did the work that I was too trained to do at the end there. Like, so yeah. It it feels good to know that like when Kickstarter showed my project to people, they were actually interested. And like that it there was that sharp uptick whenever they showed it to people. Um, though as a creator, it's it's a little frustrating to because it's like it's like, what if they just promoted it the whole time? What would I would I don't know.
2: I felt the same way when I was working on uh, the Instagram account where whenever uh, Instagram would expand the reach, the numbers of likes and all impressions and all interactions would go up dramatically. But whenever they cut down the reach, it went down. So I'm like, well, if you showed it to everybody on Instagram, just the same percent of people would like it.
1: So just do that. Do that. They didn't do that. I guess they got (laughs) to share the spotlight or something. I don't know. Something ridiculous.
2: Yeah. It's all about ratios: how many people viewed it, to how many people clicked like on it or interacted with it in any way. And then they're like debating between uh, one one thousandths or one one millionth of a percent difference between two different artists to see who they give the cookie to.
1: I would love to see like the analytics of like who viewed the Kickstarter and like what percentage backed it, or like followed it or whatever. Um, but as far as I know, there's no way to access that that's
2: useful information they can't give you that
0: yeah well the beginning middle end paradigm should be modified to include all of the post kickstarter stuff because the end of the campaign is not the end of your work (laughs) there's probably half again at least as much work to do um getting everything um wrapped up and like actually like finish finish where you don't have to think about this Kickstarter campaign anymore. What's, what's next for you? Like what is left?
1: So luckily for me, I, like I said, I did like 90% of the work beforehand. Um, and now for my Kickstarter, um, all the backers got into a beta test. Um, so I, I made up like a nice PDF for all my backers, um, to get all the rules and stuff. And I sent that out. And now, uh, that, that took me like a few days to do. So that was, I'd say that's like the majority of my work that I have to do, uh, that I had to do after the project. Um, now it's just getting the feedback from my backers that are doing the play test um, and then adjusting my rules because I want to make sure that I'm making a good product. Um, and then once all that's together, then just adjusting the layout, adding all the art that I didn't add to the, the bare bones beta test PDF and uh, then sending it back out sometime. I'm planning on doing that sometime in the fall. I haven't got a solid date yet, but yeah, before our late October, before late October, I'll be doing that. So as
2: all the feedback from the players been all the plus one items should be now be plus three items.
1: Yeah. Mostly they're all like, yeah, these should actually be plus five and they should all make enemies explode. I
0: was <laughs> like, Maybe, maybe you're right. That's an interesting part of the process. That, as an outsider, I wouldn't have uh intuitively thought of that. You know that there's a playtesting phase for a product like this. You know where you're making a and a D module. If you're if you're sort of like in that space and you're kind of like used to making those types of products or at least familiar with that world, is that something that is typically uh, that is typically done, and you would just like already be aware of that being needed to be part of the process, or is that something that some people should maybe think about?
1: Uh, I looked through a lot of Kickstarters, and it didn't seem like a lot of others were doing these kinds of play tests afterwards. It seemed like they might have done the the play test beforehand, um, and I, which I did. I did an alpha play test with like thirty ish players over the course of like a bunch of sessions that I ran, um, but. I don't know. It's, it's really, imp- I, you know, me, I like collaboration. I'm a big collaboration fan. So like this is kind of a way of me collaborating with all of my backers and like getting that feedback is something that I'm really excited about. Um, and creating a good product is something that I'm very excited about. So I wanted to make sure that the, the play test, like that was, that was something that I thought of like before I even did any research, I was like, I got it. I want to do a play test with these people afterwards. Um, I haven't seen it in very many Kickstarters, but I think that they should. But I understand why they don't. It's it's more work for me, whereas instead I could have just been like, here's your PDF. Good luck. You already paid me. Whatever. Your DM can change it if they don't like it.
0: Exactly. Yeah, but I mean, there's certainly uh, you know, I mean, well, there's the obvious customer service benefit to it, but there's also a social capital investment, like a long-term social capital investment that you're making that if you make all those people happy, then they'll probably come back to you. If you just, you know, (laughs) send them a fucking broken shoe, then they're not going to be into it the next time.
2: (laughs) Broken shoe is actually one of the items though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I want it to be. Um,
2: uh, I do have a a quick follow-up of that. Uh, not only um, is just the idea of making better product make the people more likely to come back, but you're also doing a play test with these people. So I imagine there's a fraction of the community that did not do a play test with you, and there's a fraction of the community that did. I'd be really interested to see what uh, fraction of, of the backers for the next Kickstarter come from both groups. I imagine, just th- uh, hypothetically, that the uh, backers that are doing the play testing with you are the ones that are going to be like the day one uh, backers next time around.
1: Yeah, probably. That would make sense. Like, it seems like the the people that are the most hyped about it are the people that are the people that want to do the playtest. So, yeah.
2: Roughly how many backers did you have?
1: Uh, th- 300 and something.
2: And roughly how many are uh, interactive with the uh, playtest to any capacity?
1: Um, uh, maybe maybe 20. It's kind of hard to tell right now because, um, the playtest, people aren't going to be able to organize a game like within a week or two. And the Kickstarter just ended at the end of uh, March. So I know of a lot of people that um, were commenting that they aren't quite ready to have it in their campaign yet, but they plan on introducing it later on, um, which may or may not fall within the playtest. Um, and there aren't a lot of people out there that are just like at the drop of a hat can just be like, all right, everybody, we're going to play with Cyberware now in our D&D 5e game. Um, so I'd say about 20 people have responded to like my updates regarding the playtest, um, but I haven't gotten a lot of feedback on my Google form yet, but it's still like super early. Right.
2: Um, I think that one thing that uh, might be useful in future, I'm just spitballing here, uh, future campaigns is people want to be involved in the process right? They want to be, feel like they're being part of a game. They're making a game, not just make, being a part of playing a game, but actually the production of it. So to these people, next time around you can say hey guys, uh, do you have any ideas for, for the for next thing? Whether it's like your monster manual or more items or whatever it is. Guys, do you have ideas for this stuff? And then get them involved. So then maybe they'll be more willing to shell out for the premium tier because that's something that they have put, uh, themselves into the product.
1: Yeah, that's it, it's kind of a double-edged sword though, right? Because like when you set up a tier that people have to p- that people pay money for to get their thing into your game or whatever it is that you're making, then you're kind of obligated to put that thing in the game even if it doesn't fit. And you don't know anything about your backers. So it might degrade the value of your product by having that much. Uh, collaboration, which was my thought initially.
2: That's true. And you can also guide them with it. It's like, so that's the first pitch. Then you say, well, oh, hey, what about this? And then they don't feel that like they're shut out of the process. So let's say they suggest a giant hairy testicle monster. And you're like, that's not really in my scheme. How about a giant mecha testicle monster? And then they're like, yeah, I can see how that fits.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, but I'm not as socially adept as you. So
0: <laughs> doing well, also, that. Also, will you be creating a sense of expectation, you know, if people are paying to be part of the process, but then their ideas aren't getting used, are they going to get?
2: Well, that, that's get, fine. Get... It's the, uh, the yes and of the, uh, of the process. So it's like the uh, uh, improv. It's yes and. So they say something stupid, and then you say, yeah, and it has vents on it.
0: Right. Moose is Moose is more socially adept than both of us, Ethan. I don't. I don't know if this would work. totally
1: agree. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take a lot. It's a low bar for me.
0: <laughs> uh, you're looking at the extent of my my sociability right now. Um, Same. So, uh, are you going to jump into your next Kickstarter like right away? Do you have ideas for one? What's uh...
1: I? I want to, but I already made a commitment to do this comic commission. So probably after I do this comic commission, I'll probably jump into the next one and get that started so I can keep the momentum going as much as I can. It's good. ahead. No, I'm not really sure what I haven't uh, decided hundred percent on what the next project is going to be. Um, I have to do a little bit more research and figure out. Uh, I want to do this in a way that makes sense. I want to build this world in a way that makes sense for my consumers, for my backers, um and not have it feel disjointed. So I, I need to be very careful about what my next step is gonna be.
2: I imagined that it was going to be uh the mech monster manual. That was just my first thought because you already have most of the assets made for that anyway, if you were just to copy and paste your mechadoodles.
1: Yeah, I was actually thinking about that as my next thing. Um but also people have been asking about like a setting where this makes sense. And like, I have my comic out uh, lineage.exe on Webtoon. Look at me doing marketing stuff. Uh, but it doesn't it really, those. yeah, it, it doesn't really show um, the back end for the GM. It just shows what the players, like the player facing part of it basically. Um, and people have been asking me about the more GM side of things so that they can run a game. That's kind of like that. And so part of me is like, maybe I should do like a little bit of like a setting primer instead of the monster manual first. Um, so we'll see.
2: Given that uh, you have, um, you have the audience that's captive at this, not captive, well kind of captive because it was still in the pandemic. You don't know um, what and... I do, Miss. <laughs> okay. And also, <laughs> and also you have uh, the, uh, you're hot off the heels of another of a prior Kickstarter. I would say personal advice, you know, you're not that you're paying for it or anything like that. Uh, Whatever it is that's quickest is the way to go. Just so you can strike while the iron is hot or at least not cool down entirely after the the comic.
1: Yeah. I feel like I have a lot of Venn diagrams. It's like the fastest thing, the best thing for the consumer and also the least pain in the ass thing to do uh, that I have to like figure out where, what, what product is in the middle of those Venn diagrams? The unicorn mech. Perfect. Perfect.
0: Getting a lot of hype for the testicle mech in chat. Just want to let you know.
1: Well, if you want something like that to happen, actually, I can't do that on Twitch.
0: I was going to say you could, when I
1: have my stream, you could do that. But
0: I I, I've, I've already shouted out your link and sent them your way. So <laughs> appreciate <laughs> you, it. You could disguise it somehow. There's probably a way to, to work that into the TOS regulations. Oh
2: you can just say like gay mate uh, gay mate and it's weird smelling for the uh, the reproductive organs and then just have that turn into, from mate to mech so game me- game mech
0: this is just a <laughs> bag of beans <laughs> i i want you i want you to see, say gay mate on sh- on stream while you're talking about doing the, the <laughs> it's testicle. it's been there. a
2: long time since i was in college and heard this term used Frequently, so my pronunciation is gonna be a little wrong. I still have to uh, not say skeletal because of uh, the way one teacher said it to me. Anyway, all right. So I don't don't even know what
0: the next question was. You gotta, you gotta pick up.
2: (laughs) All right, you opted to go with digital only. Do you think that was a good thing or a bad thing this time around?
1: I think that I would have had more backers if if I had given a physical product, Um, but digital was easier for me. And also I felt like while spreading uh, COVID through mailing is like very low, I I figured why would I want to even put a little bit more stress onto that system during this time? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I don't need to. So, and then later on I can do physical copies. Like there's nothing stopping me from doing physical copies after this. And if people want a physical copy, then they could do it or they could get it then.
2: But was it uh, something that keeping it digital only, was that something that kept the uh, the initial bump to actually start working on it lower? So you actually got started at all.
1: Maybe I'm not really, sh- I, I can't really say for sure. Right. Like I would have to do an AB test and I don't have the B test. So
2: sure. I just mean like uh, some people like, when they're doing art or starting a project, there's something that, that seems it's actually insignificant, but just is this one thing they don't want to do like, Oh, I lost 10 minutes of progress uh, in my game. Cause I didn't save enough. And so I have to do that 10 minutes all over again. You know, it's not that big of a deal, but it might've stopped them from continuing on. So if it was a, but it doesn't sound like the idea of a physical book is something that was going to hamstring you to start a project or not.
1: No, no. If, if I felt like that, like if there was no pandemic or anything, I probably would have done a physical copy. It it's not really a problem. Um, kind of that thing that we were talking about at the very beginning of the, the podcast when we were talking about how there like I felt like there was that wall of keeping me out of making art for a living um, because I wasn't talented enough or whatever has kind of instilled in me like I if I if I feel like I want to do something, I'm just gonna do it like. I don't think about whether I can do it or like I'll figure out how to do it. It's fine. Uh, So like offering physical copies is not something that would stop me from making a Kickstarter.
2: It would just cut into the profit and uh, maybe raise the price that you put for each book. That's about it, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, it would have changed how the Kickstarter ran maybe. But other than that, it wouldn't have affected my ability or willingness to create it
2: so we all see the uh the final uh goal uh, the final funding amount um how did that break down into profit versus uh expenditures and how did that break down into like a dollar per hour if you had to spitball it or ballpark it
1: you know i didn't do that math um but the cuz so i didn't do the math because like i did the math for creating the art and i did the math for um making the rules and stuff like that and for that I am not quite breaking even yet but i viewed this as an investment um so like if you were to ask me like what the profit was for this project i would say it, I'm in the red still but it was that was a loss that I was willing to take um because first of all I'll be selling this product like after the Kickstarter it's not this isn't the end this is the beginning as lame as that but um, also I'm building up an audience for my next project and the project after that that I do in this line so I I didn't really view it in that way I wasn't too worried about the numbers in that regard it was more just like this is the number that I need to hit so that I can eat comfortably
2: so you still have the contact info for all the prior people that backed you as well as people that followed I believe the prior campaign
1: Um, I don't know if I have, I don't think I have the resource or the people that followed, but the people that backed for sure.
2: So hopefully all those people will be the day one purchases, especially the people that uh, were interactive in the uh, playtesting. Exactly. That's the hope. And you'll boost the algorithm the first day and then you'll get even more names. And since you have a very specific genre, theme, style, you'll just keep, people in this lane so you keep adding to the, to the uh, mecca mountain
1: that's right the mecca ball uh,
0: um, moose when you talk about maintaining or keeping track of people from that had supported previous campaigns are you talking about like keeping track of like emails and stuff like that
2: right he still has the email list from uh, this campaign so he I, I still get emails from prior campaigns that like for their future campaigns and I'm like okay that's cool but um, not right now or, you know, or sometimes it's, oh, cool. This thing I liked before, there's more of it.
0: So that's, I don't want to say it's like, you're, you're just adding people to an emailing list. I don't know. I always feel like a little bit weird about adding people to an emailing list that they didn't sign up for themselves, but I no, it's that... not
1: like that. It's like, so like the, the most straightforward way that Kickstarter has of doing this is the update system. So when my next Kickstarter goes live, I can put an update on this Kickstarter and be like, Hey, the next edition of this Kickstarter line is going and they'll all get an email saying that that. Oh, so, I see. but then also there are like, I can put out a survey to get their emails and if they want to be on the, the email list then they'll give me their email and I'll add them to a list. Um, And then there's also um, sites like BackerKit that will do it automatically. So they like connect to your Kickstarter. And then I I don't, I'm gonna use the word harvest. They harvest the emails from the backers and then allow you to send out an email through them to your your previous backers uh, for your previous projects.
0: Okay, that makes a lot more sense this is all good information for me too. being, <laughs> and, and I I have this love and love, hate relationship with Kickstarter now. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> Don't we all?
2: Yeah. I think we've, everyone has been burned by Kickstarter at least once. At least I imagine that's the case. Uh, ba- I backed a project that turned out entirely different from what uh, it was projected to be. And I'm still salty about that. So, I only pretty much at this point only back projects from friends and that's it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's part of the why I wanted to be pretty much done with my project also was so that I can definitively be like, this is what I'm putting out. Nothing different. And this is exactly what you're going to get. And I don't want any sort of miscommunication there.
2: You should start every post with more cake that, uh, that comic.
0: (laughs) Perfect. So you mentioned that you'll continue to sell this product after all is said and done with the whole Kickstarter process. Where do you plan on making that available? Uh, hopefully it'll be on
1: drive-thru uh, rpg.com. I think it's .com. Um, it's like a major tabletop RPG PDF uh, store. So
2: It seems like a giant pit of uh, RPG stuff. So I'm not sure how you get visibility on that site.
1: I haven't gotten there yet so I don't know.
0: But why, why I know you, plenty of
1: people that have done it so
0: Why uh did you decide to go with DriveThru as opposed to um DM's Guild, which is another one? So DM's Guild has a lot of strings attached to it that um I
1: don't think that I'm following any of the guidelines that they require and also I don't I don't think you can actually do a Kickstarter for a DM's Guild product.
2: Right. It has to be exc- exclusively through uh, DM's Guild. They don't allow right. it to be
1: sold anywhere else. So that's the biggest reason. Okay, It'll right. also be available, like on my website and stuff like that. <laughs> but Drive Through obviously has the audience already.
0: Does the Kickstarter? You always- go ahead. Good. Ahead. Does the Kickstarter page itself stay up? Like, could people go to the your uh, the Kickstarter page now and buy it? So
1: um, not. Currently, but in about a week, people will be able to do that. Fingers crossed. What happens in Barring all? technical difficulties. So in two weeks or after two weeks of the Kickstarter ending, that's when funds are dispersed to like my account. And then um, my consultants uh, will be setting up a late backing platform that I'm not 100% on, I just know that it exists. Like, I know that it exists. I don't know how to do it. Um, but, well, there goes Moose. Um, but, uh, so once that gets going, then they can, like, click a button and back it late, basically, um, and get access to the Kickstarter. So if this sounds like something that you're interested in, cyberware inside of a D&D campaign. You'll be able to back it in, within the week, hopefully.
2: I think what you should do is... Uh... Copy and paste this, change all the cyberware to cyber stuff, and then post it to DMs Guild.
1: Perfect. And then Don't like
2: expect a thing.
1: I could just put like a Photoshop filter over all my art. That way it's like different. It's a little different.
2: Or you can put it through uh, what's it, Dream Machine or Deep Deep Dream Generator, the AI thing.
1: There you go. It would probably make it even more uh like Lovecraftian Cronenberg esque. With all like the eyes and stuff that it always puts in. That might be interesting as like a. I might have to try that later with my Mechadoodles.
2: I mean, it's always fun to uh, mess around and say, all right, this uh, artist's work with this artist's style. What happens? Oh, God. You yeah.
0: know. Well, um, we're coming up close to the end of our questions. There were um, a couple of questions that we saved uh, from the chat that had come up before they weren't quite relevant at the time. Um, but I think that there's some space to touch on them now. Um, one was your opinion on things like Etsy. Uh, and I think you had touched a little bit on about, you know, your threadless shop. Was it threadless or, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I know, I've, I know I've seen t-shirts for, you know, a lot of your, your stuff before you, you've got very merch friendly stuff. Um, but you were also saying you don't promote it very much. Aside from just the kind of like lack of promotion, do you have any kind of thoughts or opinions on artists using platforms like that?
1: I think they should do it because like, what's the worst that can happen? You get passive income like $5 every year. Like if, or if nobody sees it, like it's, it's out there. So maybe someday somebody will happen upon my t-shirt shop, even though I don't promote it, and then maybe I'll start getting sales from there. Maybe they'll share it with somebody and maybe I'll find my niche and start making money off of t-shirts. And all I did was you know, spend a couple hours uploading images, like five minutes at a time, over the course of like weeks. And now I have an income based off of something that I did way long ago, and I didn't have to do anything for.
2: Are we allowed to talk about the uh, Illustrati?
1: Yeah. Representing. All
2: right. right. So this was the group that you were talking about earlier with the group of, uh, comic book illustrators, correct? Yep. Is it all comic book or is there uh, other types of illustration involved?
1: Um, all the people who run it make comics. So, um, but, and I guess, I guess the server as a whole is like mostly comic artists for sure. Because like a lot of our, a lot of our, uh, Discord members, I guess is what you'd call them, um, come from uh, Walter Ostley's YouTube channel, which is all about webtoon uh, creation. So,
2: and is it uh, an open platform for people to visit, or is it one of the closed ones where you have to
0: know somebody in order to get in?
1: No, yeah, anybody can join in. Um, I'll provide the link for the description all that stuff.
0: Yeah, we'll include that link in the show notes after the fact.
1: And so, like, if if you're interested in making comics, come and check us out the illustrative discord will help you with whatever you need
0: can confirm everybody there is very cool, very open, very friendly. Um, another question was about social burnout. Uh, it's kind of come up, uh, a lot through throughout this, you know, being kind of exhausted easily by lots of social interactions. Um, so in a career that mandates at least a certain amount of that, what do you do to avoid burnout or deal with it when it happens? I
1: try to like know my limits. Like I won't, I won't like force myself to be, you know, on Twitter, whatever, like all day, like I'll force myself away from it. um, Or just ignore it when I am not feeling up to it because it's just so easy to get burnt out. Um, There, there are certain times where it's like, I allot that time for me to get burned out, like, like I was saying at the beginning of the Kickstarter, it's like, all right, I know that this is going to make me not want to like interact with people for, for very long afterwards. Um, but it's something that I have to do to like get my project off the ground. Um, so I think it's something that you, you kind of, when you're somebody like me who gets burned out on it easily, you kind of just need to like know that it's going to happen if you push yourself and like what, where that line is going to be basically
2: since I know there's a lot of people involved that are in the uh to play tabletop RPGs you can imagine playing a character that's a salesman or something whatever it takes in order to get out there and post your stuff like um a lot of times on social media I don't act like myself I put explanation points in, and I, I put a lot more smiley faces than I otherwise would I'm playing a role and uh it's just easier for me to think about, about it as um I'm some happy guy that everybody wants to be friends with. In reality, I'm this (laughs) nobody likes me. It's fine. But, um, that's basically I help people and some people send to seem to appreciate that. And that's my life. Um, but if I had to market my own art all the time as myself, I would be the most boring person to follow on social media. So you have to pretend yeah. to be somebody else. And that can be draining as, as well. But if you think about it in, the, in a game context, maybe it'll be fine. Hey, I have to negotiate this with my uh, high charisma and get the uh, the merchant to lower the price to 50 gold by my correct way of uh, speaking to, through all this. Learn the way that the people that are uh, good at this stuff talk and talk like them. I kind of hate this, though, uh, to be honest. Uh, there is a person who was involved in the EverQuest community as one of their community managers, and I was hurt when I met him in person. On the show, he was, Hey, guys, it's so good to see you all. Yeah, come on down to the studio. It'll be great. I'll give you a tour myself. And in person, he was, Oh, hey, hey, Moose. Um, Yeah. So, welcome to our studio. Um, I have Meredith over here. She's going to give you a tour. I can't believe you actually showed up. Um, <laughs> and he was like that uh, all the time. When he uh, was talking to somebody who he wanted something from, he would be, hey, it's good to see you. Let's get a drink. I'll buy you a beer. And then if he was talking to me or somebody he didn't have anything to get from, it felt like a very transactional relationship with them. And it was... Oh, okay. How much of my time do I have to give to you before you leave me alone? So, that's my rant. But yeah,
0: it's a good rant, and I think the takeaway could be like just the, the the first part of your uh your your rant was good advice. Um, not that the second half was bad, just that like that I I I never thought about it that before. Of like you know like playing a role like literally like role playing a role, (laughs) like pretending that you're just like an actor in this movie. Um, I think that there's something to that. And to the second part, you know, of it being a dangerous game to play, I guess maybe just, you know, don't come into it with this acquisitive mindset where you're like, oh, what can I squeeze out of this by pretending to be this role? So, yeah, I guess as long as you're not doing that. I mean, I think it's it's about putting forward
1: your best self as cheesy as that sounds uh like just almost manufacturing like the version of you that you wish that you could like uh be for people and like you only need to interact with those people on a small scale so it's like much easier to like be that person for those people rather than the person that you are for yourself i guess
2: yeah, uh, Allie mentioned it being like uh, a a person wears many hats, and sometimes I have to put on this hat in order to. Uh, and that's true. Yeah, what was it? Uh, Shakespeare said, "A uh, uh, world is but a stage, and in, in a role, in a in a in a lifetime, a man plays many roles," or something like that. This is going back to high school, and I don't remember that very well, so I butchered that quote. I'm sure. Yeah, oh,
0: I thought but, you were yeah. going to say, uh, "Well, this, the uh, the Russian novelist from uh, the 1800s that I read."
2: No, the, the music, uh the composer.
0: Oh, oh right, right, right. Okay. Um that's lame putting an inside joke into uh uh the uh, a podcast <laughs> nobody has any idea what we're talking about. Luckily it's the end. If you've made it this far, uh god bless you. Um what uh of there's so many places for people to find you Ethan. We're going to include all of the links in the show notes. Um you know of the all the awesome things that you're working on. If there was one place though that you would like people to go to, where would you like people to find you?
1: Twitter is where I'm going to be most active. So check me out there.
0: And that I think brings us to our trademark final question. Uh, Aside from personal work, personal projects and business, what's one thing in the world that's happening right now that you're excited about?
1: All right, so I'm, I have two answers because my first answer is going to be kind of lame. So my first answer is there's this animated show on Amazon, Invincible, which I am thoroughly loving. Um, but I don't want to say anything about it because I'm one of those people who's like super into like no spoiler thing other than to say you should go watch it. Um, even if you read the comic, like the animation is pretty awesome. Um, and then my second answer is kind of spicy, which is NFTs. I'm actually really excited about those.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I, go ahead, go ahead.
1: I, I know I could see Moose's face when I said it. It's awesome to see it like in real time. Um, <laughs> not necessarily because of the art stuff, but just because of the applications of NFT. Like I think it's it's something that has, that should have been around for a long time and just having... The blockchain be used for more than just coins, I think, is really important and really cool.
2: Yeah, I think you're going to find a, a very nice audience for your NFT love on Twitter. I, I hear they're great at it. No,
1: um, I hear that too.
2: Actually, I've heard that there is a very fond community for uh, NFTs on Twitter and a very anti NFT community on Twitter. So it's just a matter of which one you're in, embedded with. Um, whatever.
1: I'm not had planning problem. on I'm not really planning on releasing them anytime soon if I'm going to, so it's just more the abstract idea of like what they could do.
0: I think it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm just glad that you didn't say vaccines. I'm so sick of people saying fucking vaccines. I mean really who cares about that?
2: I had my vaccine on Friday, first one.
0: Oh my so god. I'm sore go,
2: hell today. So if you see me moving around in my chair, it's just because I hurt all over.
1: But you see I'm not excited about vaccines because then i'm gonna not have my excuse to be a hermit anymore so i'm not really excited about that
0: you know, i mean you could just uh you know really ride the way ride the wave of popularity from your nft support and just go full anti-vax man wow Love all right so that. Now,
2: now that we're canceled um, i was gonna say uh I, don't remember if I mentioned it on the podcast before, but I'm out working from home all the time anyway, Uh, even after the pandemic is over. My boss is just like, yeah, we've discovered that we don't actually need uh, to be in the office all the time. And Zoom is good enough. So you can take your stuff home and be a hermit for the rest of your life.
1: That's awesome. I would say I'm jealous, but I mean, that's the life I chose as well.
0: Well, Ethan, thank you so much, man. This has been fantastic I uh, really appreciate you indulging us with all of the social energy uh, i'm not saying that sarcastic or snarkily i i, I know how it be and i feel your pain and i really appreciate the time man thank you so much for being here
1: yeah thanks for having me and after this i'll probably just like veg out for the next for probably the rest of the night <laughs> after we talk about Shadowrun, right gotta do that
0: all right cool well i'll let leave you guys to that i'm gonna hit end